Welcome to the Adelaide Living Podcast, where we share the stories of the city. Adelaide is a city shaped by stories. Those of the traditional owners of the land and of our increasingly diverse community. Each story is unique, but what links them is the place of Adelaide, a city designed for life. So join us as we uncover inspiring stories of the people of Adelaide. Kelly Vincent exploded into Australian consciousness, making history in 2010 as the youngest woman ever elected to an Australian parliament and the first Australian elected on a platform of disability rights. An advocate for people with disabilities and their carers, Kelly's vision is for a fair society, a world where no one is voiceless. And she takes this drive to the 2020 Adelaide Fringe as their Access and Inclusion Coordinator. Let's hear from Kelly as she charts her course to the fringe back from those early and certainly very difficult days when she first illuminated the Adelaide social and political radar. I think at the time, Christina, I don't know that I was entirely conscious of exactly how powerful everything that was happening was because you have to remember that um, part of my exploding, as you put it, um, came from the death of my colleague, Paul Collier, who was the number one candidate for the Dignity Party at the time. And so not only am I processing that that loss, and um, that's a personal loss, but also loss to the broader disability and Adelaide community, but I'm also a 21-year-old who has stood in this candidacy, absolutely promised there was no chance of, of getting elected, and so I've got a lot to process at that time. Um, but I think, you know, you could drive yourself mad looking for a reason as to why everything happened the way that it did. And absolutely, I wish it happened differently, but it happened. And in so many ways, I've been so lucky to have the opportunities I've had to make the changes that I have made and to have also had the past that led me to that position as well. I mean, my mum has three children. I've got two brothers, one of whom is also disabled. And so we were very much raised, all three of us advocates, particularly for disability, but broader human rights as well. My mum always used to tell us that we won the lottery in life being born in Australia because of the freedoms and the rights that we have here that people don't always have in other parts of the world and so I think I'm really lucky I don't I don't think that I know that um, with the opportunities that I've been presented with but also the upbringing that I had leading me to have those opportunities and indeed lucky to to have the voice that I do because of course represent, representing in particular disabled people um, you're not always representing people who have found their own voice as yet and you're also dealing with a society who doesn't always recognise disabled people as being capable of having our own voices. So it's been an enormous privilege, but to to sort of sum that shockwave into one sentence is almost impossible because there was so much going on at that time and so much processing, but it was also happening so fast as well, you know. You, suddenly you've been elected, appointed to parliament, you're, you're learning all those rules and regulations, you're adjusting to 
being the boss of your own office, which is a very strange thing at the age of 21. And so it's sort of it wasn't until I was out of Parliament that I really had time to stop and and take stock of how that felt for me personally. And I don't think I've finished that yet. Now that you're looking back, how do you how do, what do you see as some of the greatest triumphs and some of the greatest challenges? In terms of the greatest challenges, I think they range from everything from how I was perceived by the public and by my parliamentary colleagues, particularly in the early days. I mean, there were colleagues literally knocking on my door to come and say hello, just to get a sense of who I was, who was this young woman with an obvious disability to try to wrap their head around how this was all going to work, to other staff, you know, I remember someone working in the Parliament House canteen telling me once that they had had a journalist ask them how late Parliament would be sitting that night and they had said, oh, we don't think it'll be a late one tonight. And they said, oh, that's right. You don't sit late anymore, do you, because of that Kelly girl? And now I'm I'm at least half the age of most people in there. Um, I'm probably able to sit up much later than most of them. Definitely. But it's just funny the, the assumptions that that we make. Um, you know, I used to get asked, particularly in the early days, um, um, by journalists, you know, questions about my politics and all that stuff as well, but even things like, you know, how how do you go to the toilet and how are you going to manage that when no one else gets asked that question? And obviously I've been managing that for, at that time, 21 years of my life and it never got my way too much. So it was just interesting that we make these assumptions. But I had a chat with my um, friend and, and mentor at the time, Natasha Stott-Despoy, you might have heard of her. Absolutely. And... Um, <laughs> And she said to me, gave me some really good advice at that time, which is, you're going through this, all these silly questions, all these misconceptions of who you are, so that at some point, someone doesn't have to, so that it won't be such a novelty to have, you know, people with different abilities, people from different backgrounds, different ages, whatever it might be. It's about having people in those places so that the novelty wears off. And given that Parliament is supposed to represent all people all across South Australia, from all walks of life, I believe we can only do that by having those people in Parliament, having those people in positions of authority, lobbyist positions, MPs, members of staff, whatever it might be, from all levels. Including age under 30. Absolutely, yes. And and I'm I'm very privileged that I I beat that, uh, that one by a long shot at the time. In fact, I just celebrated my 31st birthday in October. And so... um, May the 6th will be 10 years since I first sat in Parliament. Absolutely flown by. Amazing. So the transition into Parliament, as you said, was a, was a, very, a, a very difficult time. Mm. How about the transition out of Parliament? It is really, really fascinating for good and bad. I remember um, on the first week of my, the first job I got, after leaving Parliament with the Education Department here in South Australia, calling up a friend and saying, I'm leaving work and it's still light outside. I don't I don't understand. Like, I was literally bemused. Um, so there's certainly some good aspects of that. I have a lot more time for family and relationships now and just a bit more time to take stock of... Of who you are. ..who I am and where I'm at in my health and, and my own needs and energy levels. So it's it's been very interesting, um, but certainly I still get a lot of a lot of the same requests. Maybe not in the same quantity, 
lot for advocacy and for assistance and advice, which I'm still really enjoying doing on a more sort of freelance, you know, pro bono level. I have my days when I, in fact, today was one of them. I drove past Parliament House on the way to the studio to do this interview and had that um, sense of of longing. And then there are other days when I drive past and think, or walk past and think, oh, you can keep that, you know. <laughs> so it's it's mixed feelings, but um, it's something that I think will always be a part of me. And for that, I'm I'm so lucky and so thankful. Because I mean, all the skills that you brought into Parliament, you've just enhanced them now with your parliamentary skills. It's made you even stronger, even more powerful. And, I mean, you, you're taking that now into your new role as the Fringe, are you not? What is, what's your title? Access, Access and, and Inclusion Coordinator. So. Ah, so tell us how that's rolling out for us. So basically, in a nutshell, I coordinate all the accessibility needs for Fringe events. So whether it's sign language interpreters or audio description for a blind or vision impaired audience, um, making sure that as many of our venues are accessible as possible, this year we're going to try and do some things like rolling out accessible matting, you know, some of our outdoor events to make it easier for people with mobility aids or people with prams or people who might be a bit unsteady on their feet for other reasons to get around. So there's a lot to think about and it involves liaising with the disability community, which, as you've alluded to, is something that my previous role involved a lot of too. It also involved in liaising with venues and council um, to work together to get those things happening as well. So there is a lot of the same kind of liaison that goes on, just at a different sort of level, yeah. But I, I, I gather that what's happening with the Adelaide Fringe is a bit trailblazy. Is, is that right from a, from a festival perspective and that there are other festivals around the world watching what you're doing in this space? Yeah, I mean, the, the Fringe is turning 60 years old in, in 2020. 60? Yes, yeah, it's our diamond anniversary. And um, we have to understand that our understanding and attitude toward inclusion of all people, including disabled people, has evolved enormously over the past 60 years and will thankfully continue to do so. And so 2018 was the first time that we had the access and inclusion role or access and diversity role, as it was called last year. So that was the first year you were in that role? Uh, No, I wasn't in that role. That was someone else, Beck Seacombe, who's since moved away. Uh, she's an occupational therapist, um, but did a great job in that role. So tell us how you how you have to work with the system to make this change happen. Yeah, so there's a lot of negotiating with artists, with venue and venue organisers, um, with council where they and we're very lucky that Adelaide City of Adelaide has been very um, supportive of of a lot of our projects at Fringe over the years, including this coming year. Uh, but there is a lot of negotiation. But not only that, I think it was the late great Stella Young who said, and "I'm going to Stella Young." Yes, I should know Stella Young. Amazing, amazing journalist, activist, troublemaker in chief, just comedian, just whatever you could think of to be. That was Stella, and she. I'm going to paraphrase her. I can't think of the exact words she used, but she really talked about the personal being political when you when you live with a disability and she was absolutely right because everything from the fact that when we go out and just spend time with our with our mates, have a few drinks with our mates and people see us doing that and that might change their perception about, you know, people with disabilities actually being able and wanting to get out and about or when we, you know, go to the shops and find out we can't access that particular store, that's political. 
when we advocate for ourselves in even the most minor of day-to-day ways, that's political. Because in doing all of these things, we're sending a message to society at large about how to treat us and about the importance of listening to us and respecting our voices as, as the experts in our own lives. So, yeah, I'm a big advocate and believer in that old adage that the personal is definitely po- political. And I think coming back to the fringe role, that's why it's so important to have people who are disabled in those roles because it really informs that in a way that I think someone without a disability with all the best intentions just can't have that same lens and that same connection to community as well, to know where to reach out, to get lived experience advice, to know who to speak to and how to speak to them, to have those sort of contacts as well and that that place in the community I think is a really powerful tool. This is all part of the work you're doing to build beyond that into better awareness and education in the broader community, isn't it? As you said, it's sort of like, is it the multiplier effect? Absolutely. It just keeps going out and out and out and the fringe is a wonderful venue to sort of really push that along. Absolutely. And I think the same is true of, I, I hope, all of my work. It's Often it's, um, you, you do one thing thinking that it will assist a particular group of people only to find that there is that ripple effect and lots of other people have been affected in different ways also. And there are a couple of examples I can think of here. One is the way in which the Dignity Party, as it was at the time, um, negotiated, get, negotiated to get universal design principles into state planning law to make sure that we have consideration of the needs of all people, whether it is people with disabilities at the moment or those who will have them in the future through accidents or injuries or even parents with prams. How do we design venues and public spaces from the get-go to make sure that the widest possible range of people can utilise this space from the get-go rather than getting into a mad panic when we realise we've left people out and therefore doing more expensive and often less effective things to try and patch those gaps. Now, we didn't get as far as we would like in that universal design isn't mandated law as yet as it is in other countries, but we have mandated consideration of those principles, which is still a step forward. But I want to ha- to, to really emphasise that the reason we didn't get that mandated um, universal design in place was that the planning minister at the time had particular bodies in his ear about how much the perceived cost and burden of this, um, which there are plenty of statistics out there to show that this is not true, that universal design is often cost neutral for many reasons. One is that you open that venue or that public space up to more people. So of course, more people can come and spend time and money there where appropriate. So you're actually opening up a new source of income. But where it does add cost, it's usually up to only about 2%. So in the cost of something like building an Adelaide Oval, for example, or a hotel, this is such small, it's literally small change, you know, in terms of finance. There's such a big investment in our future, particularly that given that South Australia has a rapidly ageing population. But another example I can think of that has been, I think, really, will be really effective in in years to come too, is our negotiating for a treatment centre of excellence for the treatment of borderline personality disorder or BPD. Now, this is one of the most maligned and misunderstood serious mental health conditions 
in existence. People with BPD often struggle with emotional regulation, with their self-image, with their identity. They have a lot of unstable relationships. There's a very high rate of self-harm and suicide attempt. Uh, and it's really, really tragic. We are losing so many, particularly young people, to suicide with BPD in South Australia. Not only that, but we have repeat emergency department presentations because without that specialised support, there was nowhere else for them to go. And so they were cycling in and out of EDs, in and out of other clinics, and therefore they're lost to the workforce, they're lost to volunteering, they've lost their family connections, family relationships. And so by putting these specialist supports in place, while they are so sorely needed, we can hopefully in time see those people getting well enough because we know now that BPD is not a, a life sentence. It used to be absolutely believed that it was um, incurable. We know that's not the case now. Yes, it's a lot of investment up front, but, and it's so easy to say when you're not directly involved. But again, even if we take away that personal aspect that we shouldn't have people dying and we shouldn't have people suffering, take that away. Just the emergency department presentations on their own can cost up to $1,500 per person per presentation. So, so this is this something that you're bringing in into Adelaide? This is something that has already is, is already been up and running. Uh, it's called BPD Co. And that was something you were pushing, advocating for? Yes, pushed and pushed and pushed for and finally got it. it and was, that was while you were in Parliament? Yes, it was one of my last negotiations in Parliament, which is just an absolute fantastic legacy to have, having worked with um, so closely um, with BP, people with BPD and their families and... and um, and you're right, it, it operates at both levels. There is the extraordinary, enormous personal cost, but there's also the, the, the cost of the healthcare system. So that's a big that's a big a big triumph. Are there any others you'd like to share? Absolutely. I'm also very proud of the fact that we negotiated, including with the City of Adelaide, to bring changing places to South Australia. Now changing places the way I usually describe them is if you take a, an, a standard accessible toilet, you know, it's got handrails, a bit of extra space, put that on steroids. So it all it has those things, but also extra room again, an adult-sized change table yeah. and room for a hoist so people can bring in their sling and be hoisted on and off the toilet or on and off the change table if they need. Now, one of the reasons... This was so important is that we know there are a lot of people, particularly, again, given our ageing population, who do need assistance with toileting, the high-level assistants who are going without, who really have to limit the amount of time they spend outside of home because they need to literally build their routine around when they'll be able to go to the bathroom. Mm. Either that or they're being forced to change on the floor of a public toilet. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of gerbophobic. I'm not the tidiest not the tidiest person, but I do like to be quite clean. And so the thought of getting... I share both. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you can come and tidy, but I'll do the cleaning. But, um, but the thought of getting changed on the floor of a public toilet just absolutely makes my skin crawl. And so that, that dignity that that affords people, and again, the ability to stay longer in the city, spend your time like anyone yeah. else, spend your money, come back into the economy, come back into the community... Is I don't think you can underestimate. I read, I think, on in one of your profiles that 
the thing that drives you is the need to shift and change people's attitudes to disability and that you're absolutely driven by the disproportionate chunk of their lives that people with disabilities have to spend battling bureaucracy simply to gain fair access to the world. Absolutely, and I think as well the City of Adelaide has been quite a proactive council on access across the board. I mean, you have Sarah Cleggett, Disability Inclusion um, Lived Experience Committee that informs the work you do, um, your inclusion plan. You were one of the councils, I think, that had a disability inclusion plan even before it was recently mandated by law. So I think City of Adelaide has always been quite a proactive council. It's been a real pleasure to, to work with, continue doing so in my new role too. You've been um, a playwright always, haven't you? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I um, always used to, whether it was puns or little short stories or little plays that I would sort of make up with my toys and dolls of kids, sort of just one of those really weird kids, but I think it was... No, 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 creative. Oh, creative, absolutely. My mum would say that too. Yeah, it's... um, I think as well, being autistic and growing up undiagnosed autistic, I think telling stories about the way I see the world or saw the world was really a way of me to consciously or not trying to make sense of it and trying to understand the ways in which people interact and with each other and with themselves. So, yeah, it's something that I, I've always loved to do and, and I'm just starting to get back into now. I've started sort of doing some poetry writing in the last few weeks that I'm trying to get the guts up to share with, with people. Um, but I'm very lucky that my, my partner is also a, a brilliant spoken word musician, a spoken word poet and musician, so that's been very, you know, inspiring for me too to, to have her. So you, you share that. And then that that playwriting background with your political background would make it makes it so easy for your transition into the fringe, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, growing up as a drama kid, one of the things that drew me to, to drama and the arts more broadly as a kid was that I, you wouldn't believe this, but debilitatingly shy and, you know, really had trouble expressing myself, really had trouble communicating, which I think is true of a lot of young young people that come to the arts and kind of find their home there and learn about, you know, communicating and storytelling and, and find people that are like them and share their interests as well, which I think... So I think through that, that confidence building and that, you know, honing those abilities held me in good stead in Parliament and also into my, my whatever new roles I, I take on from here, I take on that confidence and those speaking abilities and those ideas about how to tell a story and how to craft your message, all of that really is founded in in, in drama and, and learning through, through the arts. Because, yes, storytelling narrative is, that's, that's how we make change, isn't it, often? Absolutely, and that's something I've 100% believed in all my life and indeed in Parliament I think it was one of our more effective strategies because I think it's so easy to talk in statistics and in all that stuff. But when you actually sit down with somebody and say, well, this is, you know, Christina, they live with BPD or with chronic pain or with um, whatever it might be and this is how they're affected, it is then so much more difficult for people to turn their noses and look the other way when you've actually got somebody say, well, if everything is going so well statistically, then why am I still going without the income I need to survive? Why am I still 
you know, in a revolving door of emergency department presentations. Why am I, you know, having to quit my job to take care of my family member with X, Y, Z needs, you know, all those things. So those lived experience stories, I think, are one of the most powerful tools we have to to affect change. And I think sometimes, particularly in minority groups and especially women, we have a habit of downplaying the power of those stories and the power of what we can achieve by sharing them. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter whether you think you're interesting or whether you think your story has changed the changed the world. In fact, I was on a panel uh, recently, I was emceeing, and one of our panellists said something that I think will stick with me forever. They said, you don't have to change the world to change the world around you. And I just thought, nailed it. That's what it's all about, sharing those stories. But it's one person or two people or a thousand people. You just don't know... I don't think we know the power that our own stories have. Adelaide, as you know, was set up as a city with early ideals of freedom, diversity and inclusion. And it's tried to be a city that breaks frontiers. You know, from the original Festival of Arts under John Bishop uh, to women's suffrage, decriminalisation of homosexuality Mm. to our first space agency. How do you think what you're doing actually is very much picking up that same banner and charging and saying, we want further change? Well, I think going back to what you've said earlier and what I've always said is that I think my biggest ambition in life is to try and take away that enormous chunk of our lives that people with disabilities and indeed all minorities spend just back battling bureaucracy, perception, misconceptions, all those things. It's the system. Yeah, the system, the man, whatever you want to call it. Systems can be changed. Yes, absolutely they can. And I think one great example of that through our work has been the Disability Justice Plan, which basically puts in place, um, to make a long story short, um, things for vulnerable witnesses, perpetrators, and, um, and victims of crime. So particular, in particular, if they need assistance communicating their evidence, if they need a trial brought forward to give them the best chance to recall their evidence if they have memory issues, you know, all these things, we've come such a long way. Now, that was a five-year battle, and we literally went from having a chief justice that said, well, you're never going to do this because the system is so traditional and has so many rules we're never going to be able to fit anybody in. So almost what's the point to having one who was willing to meet with me right before Christmas and sit down and say, explain this to me, what needs to happen, what needs to change, to having that passed in law and being the first one in Australia to do so and having the rest of Australia, if not most of the rest of the world, looking to us on that is... Absolute, and again, that was achieved through lived experience. People who had been let down enormously. Let down doesn't do them justice by the by the justice system. In fact, I don't believe we could even call it that in its current um, makeup, the justice system, because it hasn't been historically. It has said people who can't communicate their evidence verbally are unreliable witnesses, even though they might be able to communicate it perfectly well in another way. And that's when I came up with the saying that I've always believed ever since and always will. And I think this is the most important. If I can teach people nothing but nothing else, let it be this. There is no one who is literally voiceless. There is no one 
who is actually voiceless. There is no one who is 100% voiceless. There are only those people to whom we haven't yet learned to listen. And I absolutely believe that 100%. And to now be a nation leader in the way that we respond to those people as victims of crime, giving them a voice. And yes, a lot of this has been devalued and defunded by the current government. I'm not even going to get into that because time doesn't permit me. But still, we are nation leading in this. We're, you know, in some ways world leading on this. And I think that's something that Adelaide and South Australia more broadly can be enormously proud of. And and it takes an enormous amount of courage because uh, it, it, because otherwise we do remain stuck in the same systems. And people do tend to feel systems can't change, but it takes storytelling, it takes grit, it takes persistence and time. And often you are pushing and pushing and pushing too for so long and just when you're starting to think, oh, this will never change, is right when the moment it does and then suddenly you're on the next thing. It's really funny how that works sometimes. You know, on that thing about bravery, I think that is true. I mean, not to blow my own, own horn but at all, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I have no union experience. I've had no previous formal politics experience or parliamentary experience prior to my role, and there I was in the example of this disability justice plan issue taking on, you know, the chief justice and lawyers and all these highly trained, very intelligent professional people. So was that brave or was that stupid? I'm not sure. But in some ways, I think that's almost what made it easier because when you don't know the rules, you can kind of make them up. Do you know what I mean? If, you, if you're not so bogged down in tradition and in... in um, not to, and that's not to say I wasn't professional. I certainly wasn't all the time, but tried to be most of the time. Mm. But um, I think not having that such a, oh, this person's on a pedestal and this is how I behave around them is actually what enables you to sit down with them as a person and say, well, look, with all due respect, and I do respect your experience and the knowledge that you have, but let me tell you what I know and what these lived experience stories are telling you, these real people are telling me, and let's find a way to work together rather than being so adversarial, because I think that's an issue that modern-day politics faces as well, is that it's so adversarial, or at least seen to be. What we see in the news, you know, the question time where we're all yelling and screaming at each other, let me let me let you in on a little secret. That's not when we make change. Most of that's all for show. When we make changes all behind the scenes, when we sit down together and say, I appreciate this is an issue, let's sit down, sit down and find a compromise. Compromise or, or coll- collaborate. Yeah, collaborate or or I don't understand why the, why this is an issue. Can you teach me? Can you show me your perspective? Can you can you you know show me this? Because we all have different perspectives. Absolutely. Quite often, you know, we would you'll be debating a bill in Parliament and somebody else will say, Oh, what about this group of people? Or what about this issue? And you'll think, Oh, I should have thought of that. So that diversity of perspective, that diversity of, of, of life experience is absolutely vital to to making positive change. Two questions. What keeps you in Adelaide? And where to next for Kelly Vincent? Um, a few things. Um, one, I was born here. This is my home. This is where my family is. Um, I've also fallen in love with someone who's also in Adelaide. So um, as long as she stays here, I guess I will too. Um, my cat really doesn't like travelling in the car. So that's something to consider. But honestly, it's, it's also just... 
Um, my community is here, particularly the disability community in South Australia is so tight-knit because we are a smaller state, so our community, is, again, is smaller. We are um, close-knit. We, we, we all do kind of know each other, even if we don't get along all the time. And that sense of community and belonging is it's not something you find easily elsewhere. But it's also just the, I think, the gratitude to the opportunities that Adelaide has afforded me and, and the wanting to, to give back. Some people would say you've turned challenges into those opportunities and you're actually saying that UC Adelaide has given you the opportunities. Oh, maybe maybe it's a mixed bag. Maybe we did a little from column A, a little from column B. But, um, you know, growing, growing up a, a drama kid, you get taught this thing that we also say in the fringe office where we're having a bit of a, a bad day. You don't say no, you say yes and. So, you know, you're presented with a challenge and you build on the next step to solving that. So, I don't know, maybe... Adelaide and I have a bit of a yes and relationship. <laughs> I like yes and. Uh, last two questions. Where to next for Kelly Vincent? Uh, where to next? Um, I would love to go back to Europe. I have these visions of going to live in Europe in a, you know, you know, garret in Paris somewhere, and you know, writing my poetry, or even Iceland. I was reading recently that um, one in ten people will publish a novel in their lifetime in Iceland. Extraordinary storytelling culture. Your top three fringe picks, and you may or may not want this question, uh, top three fringe picks and why. And this question is optional. If you were a fringe show, what would people expect? If I was a fringe show, what would people expect? I think a lot of my... I know this is... um, uh, shocking, you know, really cutting edge, new thing to say that no writer has ever said ever. But a lot of my material came out of the time that I have spent in depression. I know it's really cutting edge stuff. And so I try to write a lot of stories that talk about the hardships that people face, but also, um, for one of a less cliche phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and the power that we have in sharing those experiences as well and admitting that we're not doing okay. So uh, antidepressants, the musical movie, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but my top three fringe picks, really excited to see Amanda Palmer again, formerly of the Dresden Dolls. I adore her. She's an amazing performer and feminist and just person in general. Um, and she's also one of our fringe ambassadors this coming year. So absolutely pumped to see her. Um, we also have a number of shows um, that are being offered in relaxed performance as well, so um, fewer lights and loud sounds, particularly for people who might be autistic or have other um, sensory needs or just enjoy a quieter performance. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to getting to that. I'm really looking forward to Tindo this year, which is our sunset ceremony that we're having in lieu of the parade to open the, the festival. So we're having Carl... Um, who's going to be doing an Aboriginal sunset ceremony for us. Joanna Agus, who's a deaf Aboriginal woman, will also be involved in that. Um, So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that. I think we had a crowd of of about 15,000 turn out to that last year. So really looking forward to it being even bigger and more accessible this year. Also Yabara, which is a sort of walking exhibition in uh, Tandanya as well that will go throughout every day of the Fringe. So you can walk and see different arts and different Yabara dreaming in light. So there's a lot of reference to First Nations cultures and their use of light as well, the importance of, of light to them as well. So I think it's going to be really beautiful. 
But yeah, check out check out our guide. There's hundreds of brilliant, amazing shows coming, and a lot of them, many of them, are also being um, offered in our access guide as well, which shows you what's available in Auslan, what's available with audio description, what's available with open captioning, what there is for relaxed performances. So lots of variety in both genre and accessibility of Australia this year. And I believe that program's deliberately in black and white too. Yes, the access guide is printed in black and white to make it more accessible to vision people with uh, uh, vision impairments. So, yeah, every every little step that we make is getting that a bit closer to being the um, fantastic... Um, actually, we're the, the biggest open access arts festival in the Southern Hemisphere, but I want us to be the biggest open access and accessible festival in the southern hemisphere so every year that we chip away at that gets us closer to that i'm really grateful to the community for their feedback and hoping that this year even more people with all kinds of different needs can get out and performers about. as well as audience absolutely i really would love to see that grow and who knows maybe 2021 will be antidepressants the musical so who knows kelly that is wonderful thank you very much thank you so much absolute pleasure to be here christina <laughs> thank you ciao We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adelaide Living Podcast, which is brought to you by the City of Adelaide. Discover more stories about people, places and projects having a meaningful impact on our city by subscribing to this podcast or visiting the Adelaide Living website at living.cityofadelaide.com.au.